everyone, this is Afsha from the Dyson School. Today we have with us Dr. Jason Reese, who is the founder and president of Behavioralize, a consulting company that applies behavioral science to solve a wide range of customer and managerial problems. Dr. Reese has published and consulted widely on problems related to behavior change, belief change, and thinking processes. He has been a full-time faculty member for 10 years at Harvard Business School and at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. His consulting work has helped Fortune 500 companies, startups, and nonprofits develop and test initiatives inspired by behavioral science. He is passionate about behavior change related to health, wellness, and technology. Thank you so much, Dr. Reese, for joining us. We're really happy to have you here. And together with him, we have our very own Professor David Just from the Dyson School. Hello. All right, so let's get started. Uh, Dr. Reese, I'm curious to know what got you interested in behavioral science. Well, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a combination of things. Um, and uh, first of all, thanks, thanks for having me here. Um, let me let me do some autobiographical stuff. Um, I so in high school, I was very interested in. I got interested in education processes because my high school was changing the way its basic structure and, and, and approach to education. And I got, I was involved in student council and got involved in some of those debates. And of course, you know, as a teenager thought I knew everything and I knew nothing, but I got, I got interested in the question of how people learn and should learn. And, and at that time, this is the late eighties, early nineties. I didn't really even know the extent to which that was a topic of study. My plan going to college was going to be to do math or physics or something like that. And I actually did those, first year courses when I got to college at the University of Toronto. It didn't do fantastically well. I wasn't actually fantastically interested in them, it turned out. And I got, I, I took an intro psychology class and the, the fortunate part for me was that at, at the University of Toronto, there was a very strong department in cognitive psychology. So I ended up taking classes with people like Fergus Craig and Endel Tulving who were champions of the field um, through the seventies and eighties and beyond. And that got me really interested in the idea of learning um, as a science, um, uh, learning as, as an object of scientific study, uh, and also human decision-making as an object of, human, uh, of, of scientific study. And from that undergraduate degree, I went on to do a master's also at the University of Toronto with a man named Keith Stanovich. Um, Stanovich had done a lot of research on critical thinking and he and, his, and a colleague of his actually coined the phrases system one and system two that Kahneman went on to make famous uh, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, but it was really this initial fascination with some, some failures of learning and decision-making processes, many of which my own, and a, and, a, and a realization that, wow, there was a scientific approach that could help solve some of those general problems. And from, from then on, I was I, really everything I, I, I did uh, career-wise and as many things in my life as possible, I tried to look at through the lens of what's now called behavioral science. And, and for me in those early days was essentially cognitive psychology. It's got to be fascinating. I, and uh, it's similar sort of story. I think I, I hear a lot of people uh, have where, where, you know, just starting to hear some of the research from a few of these key uh, sort of luminaries in the field really does, you know, get you jazzed, get you going. Um, I, was, 
I was wondering also, so I know you from your, your previous life when you were a, a faculty member at, at a couple of the best business schools in the world. What led you to leave academia and, and start Behavioralize, which, I mean, it seems like that would be a pretty risky choice to make, um, but I, I, I'm wondering what, uh, what you led you that direction. Well, I guess it was a it was really a fascination with problem solving and the activities associated with problem solving, and and it is certainly the case that you can get those in academia. Um, but the nature of the problem solving there was more around um, getting studies off the ground and getting them through the peer review process, which, which is a process I have a lot of respect for, and it's an important one. But I kind of wanted to get, um, you know, kind of get in the in the mud of it of 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 rich problems like how to get people to eat in healthier ways, how a business can help people eat in healthier ways. Like it's one thing for that to be a public health message, but for a business to actually try to form around uh, a public health proposal or objective, that was a that was a complexity and almost con conflict of missions that I wanted to start start thinking about, and I got a pretty good taste for it in my time as a faculty member at Harvard Business School where I was writing cases on, on companies that were dabbling in some of these problems. Um, and, and I just found that that's what I was thinking about more was, was the organizations that were trying to solve the problem on the ground. Um, I was thinking about that more than I was thinking about the, I guess the, the academic pillars, um, the, the research pillars, the immediate research pillars behind it or the next needed research pillar. I, I thought there was plenty of great research out there on which to start doing problem solving. And I just wanted to be part of that. Um, so I, I'd, been, I'd certainly been dabbling in, in consulting work throughout my academic career uh, in an ad hoc base, on an ad hoc basis. Um, I was teaching first year marketing. I taught that for 10 or 15 years and thought, you know, now's the time to really um, go at it full steam and 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 see what I can do and so far about two years in uh no looking back now ask me how I feel in a year uh you know perhaps in the middle of a recession um we're recording this in the in the still early days of of the coronavirus pandemic um but of course there I think I I think our field has a lot to say too and I think academics are trying through research and practitioners are trying through what they do with their companies um often health focused companies um anyway that's a that's a long answer to I guess a simple enough question but it, it really was a drive towards wanting to dig into problem solving and I still do have a passion for that I, I, so related question at least to some of the things that you were just talking about um, you do see a lot of these companies that uh, that at least publicly are taking an interest in behavioral economics to try and solve some of the problems you're talking about, like uh, like overeating and and uh, things like that. And it, it it has always struck me that a lot of this seems to be against their direct interest. Are they? Are they sincere in seeking these solutions, or is is uh, there something else going on there? Well, they're, they're, I think both are true. Frankly, um, I think they are sincere, and and they also want to appear to be 
sincere. So <laughs> there is definitely a public relations element to it, but but frankly, very, very often not. There are there are many cases where I think business interests and public health interests are aligned. Um, what's the? I, I mean, let, let me sort of ramble through a couple of examples, David, and tell me if this is the the direction that you had in mind. But we can start with. Let's start with food, um, and let's even take the restaurant business or the quick serve, even just even just quick serve and convenience food. And I'll try to resist naming naming brand names, partly because I think that's not fair, and although you can press me on it. But let's take some of the big fast food <laughs> yeah. companies uh, that you might like. In a lot of ways, they would love to be serving us fruits and vegetables um, all day long if we would only buy it, but people aren't so willing to buy it, less healthy things are often just faster and easier to make. So they're gonna go with that flow, but if they can kind of gradually scale back in a healthy, in, scale things towards a healthier direction, and there's a real market opportunity, um, they'll, they'll do it. Um, maybe that's beating around the bush and we, we can press on that, but you know, certainly in healthcare where I'm doing much more of my work now, um, you take one of the big behavioral challenges, which is medication adherence. There, most of the players are, are aligned. Of course, the pharmaceutical industry would like us to be compliant with our medications. The, the physicians would be too. That's the reason why they're prescribing them. The, the, the medications are consistent with standard of care. Um, the insurance companies in, in most cases, even though they're the ones paying for the medications, would also like it too because um, you know, one of the big things driving up the cost of healthcare is uh, the healthcare services, the, the the stuff that's happening in in hospitals and IC, ICU intensive care units, um, and sometimes people end up there because they're not taking their medications um, earlier on. So getting people to take their meds can sometimes, very often, in fact, save money down the road. So I think there are plenty of cases where the incentives are aligned, but if there are ones that you would like to push on where they're not aligned, we can go there. I was, I was just wondering generally, I, uh, it, it, what your impression was, because I, I, you often hear people sort of caricature it one way in, in terms of these companies really don't care. And I, I, at least my experience has been it's a little more nuanced than that. And I, I, think, I think you actually describe it uh, quite accurately where, where you know they do care, but they also, they, they, I mean, they have this sort of conflict that they're they're trying to address um, that makes it very very difficult. Yeah. And perhaps that means that in the end, some of the results that they they chase make it look like they really don't care. Um, but yeah. I, I I guess uh, can I go for one more piece on that? You know, in in the area of food, where you and I have both done a lot of work. I mean, and let's go back to these quick serve restaurants. I mean, th there was a time when they really were family focused places. And, yeah. you know, to some extent they still are. I, I sort of think of them as places for teenagers now. Um, and, and, you know, again, both are probably true, but um, imagine a case where one of these places could provide a meal that, that, a, that a young child wants that'll give them, you know, the, the, the brown foods that they want, the, the, the chicken nuggets and the French fries. And the parents can get maybe a, a slightly more vegetable forward uh, meal. They would love to be able to do that, but it, it's not an easy problem 
to solve from an operational perspective. And I, I do think they're gradually getting better at it. But there's also a ton of competitive pressure. You look at some of the new chains that come out, especially in the cities, um, especially in the coastal cities, but cities generally, um, they're very much about getting people um, lower calorie, more vegetable forward meals uh, quickly and at, at a reasonable price. And if those old chains are gonna stay in business, they're just gonna have to get better at that. So consumer demand is pushing them, but so is the competition in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I remember one of the prominent fast food restaurants and I, I won't name names, but they, they had been experimenting with opening locations that were very specifically for those types of meal experiences you're describing. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't followed very closely, but given the fact that I haven't heard much about it, I'm guessing it didn't work very well. Um, but, <laughs> but at least they're making attempts, right? I, I want to shift the focus a little bit and, and pull it back to, you know, what, what exactly are you working on with uh, behavioralized, what are what are some of the big themes or or uh, or you know pieces of, of research that are, are finding its way into application here? So there are really two big problems that I that I focus on when I say behavioral science, and um, I'll say most most of the work I am doing now is around is in the healthcare space, and the way I the the the, the tagline that I'm starting to use is something like this: healthcare companies need state-of-the-art medical science, um, as everybody knows, but they also need state-of-the-art behavioral science. And that's not widely recognized yet, at least the state-of-the-art part. I do, I do think it's true companies are dabbling and many have behavioral science groups, but the state-of-the-art is coming along. And, and that's not true, just true at the companies, the state-of-the-art of behavioral science itself is still very much coming along. Um, but that's where, the, pro, that's where the, the focus of the work is. And I break the behavioral science down into two main sets of behavioral challenges, as I call them. And these are failures in critical thinking or gaps in critical thinking, and then failures or gaps in behavior change. And the way I approach it is I've got frameworks for those based on um, research in the, um, largely in the academic literature and on my own experience. Um, but I find that those two problems, failures in critical thinking, failures in changing our own behavior even when we want to, um, find pretty widespread traction across business functions, including research where companies are often trying to, to find out where those failures are, um, in marketing and sales where they're trying to solve those problems for their customers, uh, in HR, in IT, retail, regulatory affairs, even innovation. Um, there are problems along those lines. Um, let me give a couple of examples just so you know what I mean by failures in, in critical thinking. Here I'm mainly talking about what we might call myths and misperceptions um, in simpler language. So an example is um, intuitions about vaccination, which has of course become very timely uh, as well. Um, but there's wide, you know, almost, almost unanimity in the scientific community on the overall benefits of vaccination, but there are still many thousands of people who resist getting vaccinations. Um, and I would argue that there are elements of failures in critical thinking in that. There are emotional reactions, there are failures to fully understand risk, um, and I think the same holds in areas of eating uh, diet and nutrition where people hold beliefs 
about diet that really aren't supported by, by data or evidence. For example, health benefits of organic food or, or sometimes labeled natural food. Um, the evidence for those benefits in terms of health isn't really there, and yet they're huge marketing trends that, that drive up prices. So that's the, that's the first piece on critical thinking failures. I, I think there's a lot there, and I hope we can dig into a bit of that. Um, but then, of course, the behavior change failures, where many of us want to change the way that we eat, the amount that we exercise, and just find it difficult to end up, end up doing that. Those two fundamental problems have a lot, have been researched by behavioral scientists for decades. We understand many of the nuances of how those problems play out. And we've actually got quite a few tools to start direct, to start to direct at, um, at actually improving the situation. And I can talk about a couple of cases potentially. Sure, so what, what leads to those, those gaps for, for you know, in, in those specific cases, you're talking about, perceptions about GMOs um, and some of these other things. It, it, what, what creates this sort of environment where people can sort of disconnect themselves from what the science says so easily? Yeah, I mean, it's partly the environment, but it's partly the nature of human intuition. I assume that many of your listeners will have read or at least started to read Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and we'll know that uh, the, you know, as Kahneman puts it, I'm paraphrasing, but he says the fast system or system one is the hero of the book. Um, most of the decisions that we make are made based on very fast intuitions. He gives examples, you see, you look at someone's face and you know instantly if they're angry or not. You know, he's perfectly right, but you, you kind of know. Um, and, this is how the human mind evolved. It evolved to make, per, to form perceptions and intuitions quickly. It evolved to be able to take action quickly because sometimes we did face very proximate, immediate dangers and, and we had to act. We, we did not have time to, to take in all the evidence. And in fact, taking in all the evidence in those days would have meant, you know, maybe getting eaten by the lion. That's, that's a caricature, but, um, it just wouldn't be an efficient approach. Now in this modern world where there's so much information out there, we do have an opportunity to take, take in all the information, but our minds aren't really wired to be able to, to react to it effectively. So we still, we still have fast emotional reactions. We still see things quickly and, and think that they must be right. And we can't get past that. So when it's very hard to get past that. Um, so when we have disgust reactions, emotional disgust or fear reactions um, to, to different types of foods uh, or technologies, we think that those dis that disgust must be there for a reason. It must be a real problem with the technology if I feel disgusted or afraid. And it might not be a real problem with the, with the technology. It might just be that that's the way your mind works. So, so what's the solution? I mean, what's the right approach? I mean, it, who... Uh... And, and who should be taking actions to try and, I, I mean, help this situation where our natural reactions are perhaps short-circuiting benefits that we could be realizing as a society? Yeah. Well, I mean, people tend to throw a lot of blame at the media. And I think much of it is fair. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bad information. There's a lot of insincere information. There's a lot of non-truth-seeking out there, and that's true. And I, and I think there would be ways of getting better mechanisms embedded 
in the media, but the media isn't like it's just one thing that's centrally governed. Um, it, it evolves partly because of um, you know, the, the way that, that we react to it. So I, I think the, the, the way that I pitch the problem is let's, let's stop being scandalized by the fact that people are not perfect critical thinkers and let's accept the fact that they probably aren't and try to work within that. At least I should say that's the advice that I give to the companies that I'm working with. Stop being scandalized when consumers get your message wrong and start trying to think about the forces, um, the human nature forces that would have led them to get that message wrong and work with it. And I think, I think disgust is one of them. Look at the places where disgust, a very powerful and immediate emotion is likely to be activated and, and, and try to fight it at, at its source. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. I work with an organization called Produce for Better Health. This is a nonprofit, but it's an industry group. It's an industry group that consists of um, players throughout the supply chain from growers to distributors of fruits and vegetables to retailers, supermarkets and restaurants. And um, they're of course trying to sell people more fruits and vegetables on the, on the basis that fruits and vegetables are healthy. And, and nobody really disagrees with that. People are under consuming them. We all largely agree that they're healthy. Um, so let me bring this back to, to disgust for a moment. There's a, there's a group, I think it's called the Environmental Working Group that comes out with this uh, annual report called the Dirty Dozen. And they raise a great stink about the fact that pesticides are used and residues can be found on some fruits and vegetables. And they talk about the Dirty Dozen as the 12 fruit and vegetable categories where residues are the largest. And like, this is just not, this is not helpful. I, so I published a piece recently on the on the Produce for Better Health website describing this. Um, the organization themselves, the Environmental Working Group, says that people should be eating more fruits and vegetables, and that yet, and yet they're pushing this kind of disgust message. And I think if if we can talk in terms of the psychology that's likely going on, rather than just just the science or only the science of it, um, we we can have a more sophisticated conversation about it um, and start to push back on some of the messaging that we're seeing. Um, I don't know, that, that may have been a little bit a little bit cryptic, but hopefully it gives you a bit of the flavor of, of how I try to approach these things. Let's call out the psychology where it's happening, call out the psychological moves um, and, and, and see if we can find ways to, to diffuse them. Yeah, but it, it's funny how small bits of, of information like that, or, or I guess the, the psychological piece of it can, can sort of undermine a, a broader and better message. I, I, I know dealing with uh, food insecurity, there's a real aversion to canned and frozen fruits and vegetables, despite the fact that they are just as healthy and in some cases more nutritious than, than the fresh fruits and vegetables you can get in the market sometimes. And a lot of it's just because of all of this messaging that's been done about fresh and, and maybe some sort of psychological attachment we have to the idea of fresh, right? I think it's something to do with like the negative messaging pervading over the positive messaging. So, you know, um, emotion of fear and disgust uh, sort of overshadow positive uh, emotions in a way. And they sort of 
like you know impact your decision making and that's why you get sort of repulsed by canned food and you are more in favor of fresh food i guess it could be that i no i think i think there's something to that there is sort of an emotional veto vote um in our in our cognitive systems that's that's pretty easily activated and and i think we just need a, a richer self-awareness that that veto vote can be there and 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 we've kind of got to resist it i mean you, you still have people talking as though their emotional intuitions if i have an emotional intuition that means i'm thinking the right thing and and we all just know that that's not true you look at areas like like moral intuition where people's moral intuitions have changed you don't even have to go back this far but let's go back 100 years there were real majority views on the appropriateness of say mar multiracial marriages or of homosexuality there were strong emotional reactions to these things and those views have changed um it not 100% but it has certainly moved in the direction um certainly in america in the context that we're talking about towards greater acceptance of the idea of racial equality and sexual preference equality. And so like people need to to recognize that their emotional reactions are not do not are not necessarily indicators of some some ultimate truth and I think it I think that's that's very true um in food as well. But it is a big one and it, and and these disgust feelings are are very potent. I'll tell you one let, let me give you just one one example of of some important ways around this. I think one of them is to try to champion the people who themselves have made what we might call emotional transformations or they they've had very strong reactions against things and then come to change their view once they took a, a deeper dive so one of the, one of the best examples of this is a guy named Mark Linus who was a greenpeace activist for many years he spent many years railing against uh GMOs and other agricultural technologies and then he started reading the science and said, "Whoa, wait a minute. Um there are actually incredible benefits to these products. Maybe there are some trade-offs, but uh the trade-offs are not nearly as big as as Greenpeace and and others had suggested they were. And we should be really looking at this. These these incredible agriculture technologies will allow us to feed the world, uh which matters a lot. Will probably allow us to deal with what is now a more global world so we can um better address some of the the um problems we have around like invader species and things like that in agriculture and he started talking about that and actually be, started becoming an advocate for um for agricultural technologies and furthermore if we go back to behavioral science there's actually a neat study showing that if you show people so people who are skeptics of things like GMOs and other ag technologies you show them a video of Mark Linus talking about how he came to change his mind he used to sympathize with those views but he came to change his mind that's much more impactful on them than is just some messaging about the virtues of GMOs it's that so it does come down to us being social and emotional animals hearing how hearing someone else's emotional journey um is maybe one of the best ways of changing our own emotions. I think it's a fascinating case. Fighting emotion with emotion, huh? Yes. Yes. I was also wondering, you know, you've done a lot of work in the healthcare space. Um and I I'm just wondering if you could talk to me about what how does how does this play out in that healthcare space? 
All right, let me let me give you a few examples of some of the some of the places where some of the places where I where I've done some work and the kinds of problems that the kinds of applied problems that I've looked at through through these two basic problems of failures in critical thinking and failures in behavior change. And I'll and I'll do this without, of course, naming specific clients. Um, but for for several healthcare clients, there's been an interest in just generally getting more informed on what are the big ideas, what are the most robust ideas in behavioral science, and have that, so to get that general education throughout everybody in their, in their organization, from the people who deal with new product development, the people who deal with regulatory affairs. So when a company has a, a new drug or a drug that they, that they think should now be available over the counter, um, the regulators want to look at it and see how consumers are going to be thinking about it, how consumers are going to deal with it. Well, those organizations want to get smarter about how they do the behavioral research that will show how consumers will think about the disease or the product, how consumers will use the product. The regulators are asking good questions, pushing back. The organizations want to be able to give better, smarter, more behaviorally informed answers. So and then, of course, in their marketing of the products downstream, they want to be better at that. So across the board, they're interested in training. They're interested, I said, in doing their research better. So they often want behavioral scientists coming in and saying, look, this is how we've done our attitudes research in the past, um, or our, you know, our, our consumer decision-making research in the past. We've asked questions around customers' willingness to pay. Is that a good approach? And we can come in and say, you know, yeah, that's not a bad approach, but there's lots more to think about. What are the biases that consumers are likely to bring in to a situation like that? And knowing that, let's maybe change your research, research approach to research, change your protocols just a little bit um, so that we're actually expecting some of these biases to, to play in. Um, so those are a couple of ways, but then, then we do lots um, within the... <laughs> I was gonna say that the complex ecosystem that is healthcare, and I, I chuckled because that's complex ecosystem is an understatement uh, in characterizing the healthcare system. There is so much complexity on the information, um, the distribution of information, the distribution of products, the number of players from the different layers of healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, general educators, um, in, including then um, other players in just the information sphere from the media um, to patient advocates, to advocacy groups, how all of that gets advocated by a company trying to bring a product to a market is incredibly challenging. And there's, there, there are layers of critical thinking in all of those audiences and layers of behavior in all of those audiences that need a careful, smart, systematic analysis. Um, and that's, you know, that's what, that's what we try to do. Um, we, we tend to be doing our work where, where there are important roles for the patient. So chronic diseases like, uh, like diabetes, like heart disease, even skin conditions, psoriasis, there are important roles for the patient. And when there are important roles for the patient, you need a good understanding of how patients think critically and don't, and how they can change their behavior and how they won't um, to be able to have your product succeed and frankly, to be able to have your healthcare succeed and be able to get best outcomes 
um, for those patients that you're that you're ultimately trying to help. Wondering, you know, if you think about this healthcare sphere and and where you know you're sort of dealing with the patients and their behavior, I'm wondering if there are any lessons that you've learned here that might actually be useful given the current situation where we're all uh, being told stay in your homes if you go out wear a mask and gloves and uh, and um, you know given a whole bunch of advice on, on how we're supposed to behave to prevent this disease that uh, very few of us have any bit of experience with at this point. Yeah, um, so let me be a bit careful here. Um, uh, you know, so the, the, the headline is yes, there's probably a ton to learn from behavioral science on this, but there will be cases where we probably make Behavioral science may, might make competing predictions. So probably the, yeah. the biggest takeaway is let's 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 measure it and and study it and see what the evidence says. But let me let me talk about a couple of aspects that, that have struck me about the, the pandemic now that we're well, I was going to say a, a week, a month, or three months in uh, here on here at the beginning of April, depending on 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 when you when you start counting. Um, but you know, it, I think it's it, it's both striking how many people are complying and how many people aren't. Um, I think it's amazing seeing these lines where people are standing six feet apart. It's amazing seeing an awful lot of people trying to wear masks now when they go out in public, even though they've been given conflicting information about it. Um, initially, the public health advocates were saying, don't wear masks. And they were saying that for a good reason. Um, which was that there was going to be a shortage of masks in, uh, for healthcare providers who need them urgently. Um, so they didn't want there to be a run on masks. Um, but the, you know, the, the message ended up being overstated. Um, but still, you've got people going out and, and doing, and, and, and many people are, are wearing masks. Many people are, are staying inside and doing what they're supposed to. I think it's pretty staggering in a way, uh, the extent to which there has been compliance. On the other hand, there are some incredible failures. You see many people out there, whenever you go outside, being, being still incredibly cavalier about it um, and not seem, seeming to worry. Um, you'll, you'll see bits of cheating behavior where people say, you know, I'm glad that everybody else is staying inside, uh, so now I don't have to. And some of that is human nature as well. Um, anyway, I, I want to be careful not to speak to um, too far beyond what I what I can really say authoritatively, but you know, behavior has certainly changed um, in the last many weeks, just about wherever you are in America, um, and very often appropriately so. Yeah, and I've, I'm expecting we're going to have uh, several years of of really interesting results coming out of this. Thinking about the behavior and and what we can do better next time, I've I've, I've got family stretched all across the country, and it's really interesting to figure out where they're you know really taking this seriously and everybody's gung-ho about let me stay inside and where they're you know, they're finding excuses here and there to try and find their way outside you know the um the place where i i think it's it's i i part of the reason I'm, i want to be cautious here is i really I, I do think it's you know we can give our behavioral science piece um but i do think really the epidemiologists need to be driving the show here and critical urgent time-sensitive decisions are being are being made. The place where I'm doing a little more speculation and where I'm comfortable being a little more speculative is thinking about what life will be like after 
the urge, the, the immediate part of the pandemic has passed. And of course, I think versions of coronavirus will be will be with us for for decades and maybe forever. Um, but you know, there will be a new normal at some point. And what's the world going to look like there? Um, and my team at Behavioralize, including uh, Jared Peterson, a recent graduate of a, of a master's program at, at Penn, um, the, the whole team, are, including Jared, are helping me think through this question of what's the world going to look like, uh, say, next year. And can I, can I try to briefly list some of the, the things that we're, we're looking at? Yes, go right ahead. So... You know, you know, one one of them will hardly seem like speculation at all because I think it's hitting most people over the head. But but that is that in a year there will be much more remote work uh, than there were many more remote meetings, many more Zoom meetings. Still, even after even after we're allowed to go to work and and go out, there will be a stickiness to these new ways of communicating that you know that that we're not just going to go back to the levels we were were before, um, and that's probably non-controversial, but, but, it, but it's going to be significant if that happens, and many social scientists are predicting that it will. Um, part of the challenge is working out the kinks in how those, in how those things actually work, not just the, the, the sort of techie things, but the, the social things. Is it as easy to, is it as easy to interrupt people when you're, you know, appropriately when you're, when you're on Zoom, I mean, you tell me you're there politely on mute, but you don't. We don't really have mute buttons when we're when we're live. You, you've never got to do that extra step before you talk. Stop your your guest from rambling on. I, I'm on sure my wife wished I had a mute button, but I don't. <laughs> um, but that's certainly a place. I mean, it'd be hard, I, I, many people have been advocating for more change like that. Um, similar thing in telemedicine. Uh, hard to believe that we'll be going back to the the baseline levels six months ago on on technology adoption on the, on those spheres. Another one that I think is is really interesting that I think is much more speculative and far less certain, um, and that is a, a a version of a prediction that was made by Jonathan Haidt one of the world's most famous social psychologists uh, out of New York University, he said something like that, uh, especially for, for Gen Z who grew up kind of natives in, in social media, they'll start to use social media in more pro-social ways and that it will, um, it, it will be less about just boasting and self-presentation um, than it has been before and more, more about real social activity um, and more things that are so socially positive, both for the audience and for whoever is contributing it. And, and apologies if I botched Jonathan's idea there, but I, but I think that's an intriguing one that will actually change our general disposition towards what we're trying to do in social media. I think that's quite fascinating. And, and those are both, those, those two are both on what, what, what we would characterize as behavior, uh, behavioralize as behavior change trends that might, might be sticky. Um, on the critical thinking or intuition trends, I, th those are those are very interesting too. Still, also speculative, but let me try to mention those briefly. So, one is on just a general appreciation of science, and this could, of course, go both ways. There could be a backlash against science, but I I have a feeling, um, and again, this is where I'm, it's a year down the road, so I'm comfortable being speculative and talking about it as a feeling, not really evidence based. But but I, I have some intuition that that there will be more 
uh, interest and respect in scientific institutions. I, I am hopeful that it's scientific institutions that are going to get out, get us out of the most urgent and deadly phases of this pandemic. And I am also optimistic that those institutions will get a ton of respect and, and credit for it. Healthcare, uh, pharmaceutical companies take plenty of heat, plenty of it appropriate. Um, but, I, but I think a lot of it is also unfair. And I think they, they have a, an opportunity here to come out looking, looking very good. Um, and I hope they do the things that earns them that, uh, hopefully newfound respect, and, and I hope that happens. And then the other one, a very, a very quick point. Um, there's, a, there's a neat article that came out last year by, by two giants of our, of our field in, in sort of the cognitive psychology side of behavioral science, uh, Howard Kuhnreuther and, and Paul Slovic. They've suggested there are great lessons for us in this pandemic about other crises that are, that are to come and that are brewing. And particularly, they reference climate change. It is possible that people will develop new intuitions around how exponential change happens. In seeing exponential curves here in this pandemic, they'll start to appreciate the, the power and really the horror behind exponential change. Um, and, and they argue, you know, there may be elements of exponential change that are happening and going to happen related to climate change that we're just not attuned to, but might start to be looking for in a more systematic way. And if the general public can come to start to think and understand the nature of exponential change, um, I think our opportunities to prevent disasters down the road, act further upstream, I think those opportunities are, are, are much more there and much more visible if, if we understand the nature of exponential change and the real risk uh, and threat that it poses. So that's how we're thinking about, about, about COVID and, and, um, and life next year. All right, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Reese. That was a great discussion and uh, I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Professor Just as well. Uh, we'll now wrap this up. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.